Welcome to The Lavender Lifestyle, the podcast on lifestyle design for millennials. I'm Eileen, and I'm here to guide you to become a master artist of life. Every Sunday, you'll get new insight and inspiration on how to create your dream life. After the episode, the conversation continues in our Lavender Lifestyle Facebook group, so I can't wait to see you there. Life is an art. Make it your masterpiece. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Lavender Lifestyle. It's Eileen, your host. Today, I'm so happy to introduce our guest, Kay He. Kay is the creator of Rad Reads. Rad Reads is a blog, email newsletter, and community centered around self-exploration. He's also Quartz's first entrepreneur in residence where he writes about leadership, career, happiness, and parenting. Hi, Kay. Welcome to the show. Hi, Eileen. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. It's a pleasure to be on. Are you calling from New York? I am, yes. I'm in uh, Flatiron District of New York. Nice. That's like a city life I don't understand. So <laughs> I'm, I'm all the way in LA. I'm like, I don't know what Flatiron is. Anyway, <laughs> let's talk about your background because I know you're like from New York. You were in the financial industry. Do you want to talk about that journey, where you came from, and then what led you to want to become an entrepreneur? So I'm actually re- recording from 15 blocks from where I grew up. And uh, I was born in New York City. My parents are Cambodian and French. And, you know, I was a good little uh, Asian boy growing up. Was very, very focused on academics, shy, definitely nerdy, but did really well um, academically. And I ended up majoring in computer science. And when I graduated in 2001, I got roped in. This was during dot-com, um, the first dot-com. I mean, Google didn't even exist. But uh, I got roped in to join Wall Street. You know, people always ask, is that, were you, did you want to join Wall Street? Were you into finance? And, and the answer was, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. But it was kind of the glamorous career of the time. And so I joined Wall Street out of college and ended up doing that career for 14 years. And I was investing mostly in hedge funds at two different firms. And and my job really entailed helping gigantic pools of money, whether it was endowments or life insurance companies, helping them navigate um, which investments to make in different kinds of hedge funds. And so I did that until I was 30, 35 years old. So 14 years. Yeah. And I want to cut in. You're so humble. I mean, for the listeners out there, he went to Yale. He graduated. went on to like have an amazing career. Like it's like a pretty epic thing to give up. It's kind of something that a lot of people dream to work at, right? Yeah. So, I mean, during those 14 years, was there excitement in the beginning or were you just kind of like going with the flow? Like, I mean, how, how do you let it last for 14 years? Yeah. So I, the reason why I bring up my childhood and, you know, we grew up lower middle class, but I really felt like an outsider as a child, um, mostly because I was really, really skinny and just not cool. But one thing I I learned as a teenager was I had this like really remarkable knack of figuring out how things worked. 
And it wasn't even like being, I wasn't the best student. I was a solid student. It was kind of like, it was entrepreneurism um, at, at a very young age. And I, I like taught myself how to program and I was um, trading mad, like magic cards and comic books when I was 12 and, and helping people move when I was 18. So I ha- kind of had this knack of figuring things out. Then when I joined Wall Street, what happened was that those skills that I had kind of developed as a kid that no one thought were, were particularly cool when you're 16 Mm -hmm. but when you're 22 and you start to do them in a professional setting it really starts to benefit you professionally and people are like uh, you know when they kind of laughed at you when you were really into computers now they're like whoa like how long (laughs) how long have you been coding like I don't even know how to do this and so what I found and it was very kind of emotional in the sense that I went from kind of being an outsider to being someone that was continually being recognized because of my ability to you know, solve problems and to be really good with technology and all that. And so initially it felt really good and there were, you know, really good paychecks and I never had to worry about money. And actually I really liked it. It's a, it was a hard job. I worked my butt off um, for 14 years. I mean, really, like I, I tell people, it puts it in perspective. I've had a, a meeting for lunch since 2005. So for 12 oh years, every single lunch for 12 straight years. And I know the hours are crazy, like very crazy, right? The hours are, the hours are crazy. They get better as you get older. But yeah, so so I at first it was like, whoa, I've made it. I've arrived. Like my skills are recognized and, and I'm getting rewarded by status mm-hmm. and, and income and, and all that. And, and that carried me, I would say, for like a good portion of my 20s. And I was like, more, 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 like people are accepting me, do it more, do it more. And then, you know, you start to get a little bit older and I realized a a few things, but one major thing. And so there's all this research that shows that once you make a certain amount of money and any additional dollar is like, doesn't really change your emotional well-being. And that number is like, the research number is like $74,000 in the US. Mm -hmm. Obviously you're in LA, I'm in New York, like you have to adjust for the cost of living, but it's much lower than we all think. I would get these like bonuses and promotions and my happiness would spike for like two months and then it would go right back down to where it was like two months later. And I guess I was lucky that I had a few of those events over, you know, kind of in my late 20s, early 30s. And I thought, I was like, well, when will I feel like really happy? And when will like my anxiety like go down? And when will I stop like being really critical to myself in my head? And it became very clear to me that money or promotions was not going to make that happen. And so that was really the first sign that I I kind of said to myself, I was like, wait a minute, I've been playing for these things my whole life, like since I was a kid, because I thought that once I got them, like I'm done, like mic drop, my life's good. And it turned out that, I mean, things were better for sure, but it didn't change, especially like that internal like angst. And so that's right. when I decided, like, I need to, to explore something different. I mean, yeah, it sounds like you felt the acceptance, right, from all the people at your job, and that's what kept you going. But it, you needed that inner self-love or self-healing, whatever it was that was within. Yeah, that's really cool. So you do talk about something called uncomfortable introspection. Do you want to share what that even means and your journey through that? Absolutely. So when I left, I 
took a break. I hadn't taken a break in a long time. And I guess for eight months, I had lunch like by myself. But what I realized was that not once in my life had I really spent time like looking within. And what, what did that mean? That meant thinking about my fears, thinking about my insecurities, thinking about the role ego played in my life, thinking about like how I was judgmental and how I was envious of others. And I didn't do that all by myself. It was it, it was part of a, a whole new journey, a whole new mindset. But what I realized was I never wanted to do those things because I was afraid. And so my whole life, I was instead, I, I thought that I could outrun my fears and insecurities. And so anytime I felt one of them come up, I was like, okay, you just need to work harder uh, or you need to earn more money or something. And, and I just like worked even harder and ran faster. And I think emotionally it just like, it all came kind of crumbling down. Like I didn't, I wouldn't have had a, I didn't say I had a breakdown or anything, but I was like, oh my God, I have never once contemplated, like I don't even know why I do what I do. I don't know yeah. what my personal values are. I, I actually don't know what makes me happy. And that's where our introspection comes in. And, you know, I had some great teachers, coaches. I read a lot. I did a lot of different activities to really kind of start opening myself up. And, and culturally, like my parents, I, I write a lot about what I'm feeling. And my parents to this day still say like, when are you going to get a job? You must be bored. Like <laughs> they literally think that I'm, because I'm being introspective, I'm bored. <laughs> it's not something they teach in like Asian culture too, or you know what I mean? For, for ambitious overachievers, no, they don't really value introspection and alone time. Definitely not. Mm -hmm. and, and I would extend that even further to hyper-achieving kind of yeah. type A people. And so that was where the introspection came in. But the uncomfortable was that I, it was a little bit of a challenge kind of to the broader wellness industry. And and the uncomfortable part, it just meant to me that like anything that's worthwhile in life, there's no quick fix. Mm -hmm. And if you're training for a marathon, it's going to hurt a bit. If you yeah. really want a project to succeed, like you're going to feel some kind of stress or you, you might lose some sleep over it in a relationship. Like it's not always going to be easy and good. And I think with introspection, so the full like mantra is that I'm finding joy in uncomfortable introspection, which I love like that oxymoron there, yeah. but it really was true. And before I would run from fears and now I would kind of look at like really like discern my fears. I would ask myself questions and I would like really just like reflect on them. That's a huge revelation that I think more people out there listening should pay attention to. You know, instead of running from your fears, actually look at them, face them and kind of be aware of what they are and yeah, learn to find that comfort in being uncomfortable, right? Mm -hmm. that, that joy in that. It's not easy. It feels scary, obviously, but mm. it helps you grow so much. And I just have this new relationship with fear because I also confused fear and anxiety. But if you mm. think about it, fear is, I see it more as um, a warning sign, right? Like, let's say your car's veering off. 
to the mm-hmm. side because you like stop paying attention for a second and you see the other car like you get this like jolt of fear yeah to like right mm-hmm. right size your car then if you're like worrying like oh my god i almost got into an accident what would have happened of this and my insurance and this and that that's more anxiety and i think people lump them into the same category but fear is really just that indicator it's like the the warning sign and with that comes a lot of useful information so for example if your boss yelled at you you would be scared like you might be scared that you made a mistake you might be scared that you might get fired that's the indicator then after that then then you can use that indicator for true discovery it's like when he or she yelled at me am i really going to get fired like did i really make a mistake or is the boss being irrational and if i really made the mistake how can i set up uh, set myself up so i don't make that mistake again and then move on and i think that we lump it all into this like big thing and it comes back to like how we're wired as humans like our evolutionary history like back in the day if you weren't scared of an oncoming saber-toothed tiger you would die but if you're not scared of your boss you're not gonna die but our brains are still set off by that same signal and I think that that's where the uncomfortable introspection comes in. It really helped me separate like what was true fear. And look, you, me, many of your listeners, most of your listeners, the true, true fears are very low. You know, like the, the woolly mammoth fear is very low. Yeah. And a lot of it is just our stories that we have crafted in our heads about ourselves and the people around us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't doubt that. I definitely, you have to realize that some fears are good for you. Some fears like don't get too close to the fire, you'll get mm-hmm. burned. I, I separate that kind of fear from the other kinds of fears, like fears of doing things that you want to do, but you're scared because you don't want to be judged or mm-hmm. you feel like, yeah, people in your life will disown you, whatever, mm-hmm. like fears of that societal impact. I guess it is hard to separate them, but there is a distinct difference. Absolutely. You know, um, a top three business school, I won't reveal the name, but they asked their graduating class uh, two years ago anonymously, what are, what are you most afraid of? And the two things that people wrote were failure and being alone. Yeah, those are huge fears that everyone has. And they're so huge, but but we forget, you know, we, we're like, oh, I went to a top business school. I shouldn't feel that way. It's like, no, that's bull. You're human. You should feel that yeah, way. Exactly. So let's talk about Rad Reads, what you're currently working on. So do you want to explain how it started and what, what is it all about? Yes. So Rad Reads, the, the reason why it's called Rad Reads is uh, my homage to skate and surf culture. And mm-hmm. when I left, I said, you know, I just want an excuse to bring the word rad, you know, which is kind of like a 90s throwback term into the common vernacular. And I, I got like a deep satisfaction of uh, thinking that, you know, lots of like 30, like 40 year old businessmen would be like rad reads and rad this and rad that. And so that that's the thinking behind the name. But uh, it really is. It started as a, as a labor of love. And, and to some extent, it still is a labor of love. And it was very simple. It was five articles that were things that I was interested in. And it started 126, 25 weeks ago. But what it what it was is that I was very much obsessed with this question, what does it mean to live a full, complete life? And I read and I read a ton. And what I found were, was that there were so many, that we weren't alone. And there were so many stories that could help us 
navigate some of these fears. And the Buddhists use the term suffering, which is basically an acknowledgement that life is hard. And there were so many great teachers out there that could share, um, that, that we could learn from about how they kind of dealt with the pursuit of happiness and wholeness. And it could range from, you know, because I'm, uh, I'm definitely like a nerdy analytical guy, it was, it ranged from psychology to pop culture to like old philosophers to neuroscience. And, nice. um, and really, uh, it was just this collection. I, I kind of call it like broccoli for your soul. Where, like, you know you should do it, but you don't really, like, if someone could make it taste good, like, put a little salt on it and, yeah. like, like, good butter on it, then you're like, okay, it's, this is not so bad. And then just bringing it, delivering it to people every week. And so it originally started as a newsletter. And then about January of last year, there was a big shift. And I realized that I was hiding behind my newsletter, meaning that I had a lot of things that I wanted to share, but I didn't have the confidence to say, I feel this way. I feel scared when I fail. I feel insecure about this. And so what I was doing was curating articles and, and saying like, I can relate to when the author says this. To be fair, I had never been a writer. I'm like a numbers guy. Mm -hmm. And so January of 2016, I finally, I don't know exactly how it happened, but I just started writing about it. And I started blogging about it. I started snapping about it. I started tweeting about it. It just kind of like came out of me. And it was like one of the most cathartic experiences for me to really, I mean, talk about the uncomfortable introspection. Yes. That's just looking in, then like putting it all out to the, to the interwebs to see, you know, especially when you came from a buttoned up, very patriarchal right. career. And you have like friends and past colleagues that like follow your rad reads and oh my God. transformation. So I'm sure it's kind of like, oh, it is uncomfortable. <laughs> and I found out later, my parents... I once wrote this list of like insecurities of CEOs. It was like 15 items. It's mm -hmm. like, I'm very judgmental. I am afraid of dying alone. And I just wrote a little uh, asterisk next to the like four that I could relate to. And my mom immediately called me. She's like, is it something we did when you grew up? And I'm like, no, 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 mom. Like, <laughs> this is just like, this is just being human. Like, and she's like, well, why are you saying this? And I was like, because by sharing my story, people feel less alone. And yeah. that's what started to happen. You know, I had zero following. I still have a pretty small following in the grand scheme of your world. <laughs> but, you know, one person was like, hey, when you talked about the time when you know, you got yelled at at work and it, it made you feel like you'd be poor. Mm -hmm. I feel that every day with my boss. Wow. And it was one person a week and then one person every other day. And now, uh, and again, that's not the metric, but, but now across all the different channels, people are just coming back and just grateful that they don't feel alone with these human struggles. And the last thing that I would, the thing that I think made it really unique is like, that's why I started with the definition of rad is that it's just, these are serious topics, but they're just like, I keep it really light. It's funny. There's a lot of pop culture in it. And, and we just kind of laugh about our humanness together. And I think that's what has made it special. I love 
love it. Like, I have a lot of different guests on this show, like, each week. And at the end of the day, we're all sharing about the same thing. We're all trying to discover, you know, and pursue happiness, wholeness, and just try to improve ourselves. But it's, it's interesting because everyone has a different personality. Everyone has a different background. So they attract a different audience. And I feel like even though you, you say your audience is small now, but you're getting to those guys, you know, those mm. guys in the financial industry, the tech industry, whatever, like those guys that normally don't dive in to find these things because my audience is like mostly women we're, we're used to journaling you mm-hmm. know what I mean like that's what we're comfortable with and it's like your audience is like kind of the opposite it's really fascinating and I think that's why I think every person's voice is important because you bring something different absolutely and thank you for for what you do because my story is just one story your story is one story Mm. there is no right or wrong answer right they're just people's stories and just adding my and you know now that i've gotten a little bit of an audience i i really want to highlight other people's stories because they're different than mine but i do think that on the male thing i think that i feel very very strongly that men especially men that are closer to my age have this belief that if you are vulnerable or if you show fear you're like dead in the business world (laughs) they need to read Brene Brown have you heard of her absolutely my wife jokingly (laughs) says she's like you're the Wall Street Brene Brown oh my gosh that's so funny yeah probably you probably are and it's good because they can relate to you exactly I would never be able to reach them (laughs) because it's just we're just not in the same world so yeah that's really interesting yeah. So, and it's having an impact. I know for sure. Like one example is I talk a lot about coaching and, and even in my, like my nascent podcast attempt, I'm really getting guests that become like are willing to get like really vulnerable on the podcast. And through that conversation, I know of about 15 of these kind of type A males that have gone out and gotten different types of coaches. And then they come back to me and they're like, I never thought, A, I never thought I would get a coach. And B, now that I have a coach, I realize it's the best thing that I've ever done. And so like little things like that, they matter because I I really believe I call it trickle down compassion where, Mm -hmm. you know, especially because a lot of my, my audience tends to be a little bit more senior professionally, that if you can shift a heart at a senior level, that person has clients, has a spouse, has kids, Mm -hmm. has direct Mm -hmm. reports. And if that one person makes a shift, everyone that interacts with him or her, mostly him, will feel that shift. And then they will downstream it to their peers and their direct reports. So I really feel very strongly about that. I mean, I honestly just want to say that that can be anyone. It does, I mean, yes, if they're like a senior level position, there's a trickle down. But if anybody acts more compassionate and changes themselves in a positive way, it affects their family and everyone in their life. So totally, I think compassion trickles everywhere. Totally. So what advice do you have for listeners out there who were in that place that you were? They don't feel fulfilled with their life. What are those first steps that they can do to make a change? Ooh. Good one. The first is to know that there's no quick fix, but that wasn't even implied in your question. <laughs> I would say, and people always ask me, they're like, "Why well, I can't quit my job. And I was like, this is not a quit your job talk. Quitting your job is for a very specific type of person. And mm-hmm. that person's not better or worse, but it's very risky and it's extremely emotional roller coaster, as I'm sure you yeah. know, as a as an entrepreneur yourself. And I think that that would be the first caveat that please 
you know, not that anyone would, but but don't go and, and tender your resignation letter. The next thing I would say is that it starts with good questions. And uh, there's a quote, I think it's Tony Robbins, that says, the quality of your life is measured by the quality of your questions. And mm-hmm. I've got a three-year-old, and she asks probably 75 questions a day. <laughs> like, what is, she even, she'll be like, what is blue? What is angry? What is Aww. me? What is what? Is what? That's great. And, and kids, I mean, you see this curiosity, this openness to the world. And then it, mm. it craters. We don't, yeah. like, as we become, we become busy, we become hardened, we become closed off to, to wonder and possibility. And, and one question that, that I love to ask, so one to start with is, what's important in your life but not urgent? And it's different than what's important because things that are not urgent, they don't have a deadline, they don't have a repercussion. So like what's important, like paying my rent, that's extremely important. I could get kicked out if I don't pay it. What about, you know, as a father, spending quality time with my wife when we don't talk about our kid or logistics? That's really, really important. But you know, you get caught up in the busyness of life and you're just kind of running a logistics show like 24 mm-hmm. seven. Like you could not ask that question for a year and your marriage will suffer. And yeah. I, I mean, I've experienced that, that like we have gone through phases where we're literally just like two air traffic controllers around, you know, bedtimes and meals and paying bills and picking up our daughter from school. And so that simple question, what's important but not urgent? Think about that in your personal life, in your relationships, in your work, right? I mean, think about how if you have a more desk, you know, a corporate job, how much time you spend responding to email. It feels important, but it may not be important. It definitely feels urgent, but says who? If you think about it, like most people probably should spend like one or two hours a day thinking about their work. Yet, whenever there's a a little brief moment, they probably are like just like getting to inbox zero or something like that. And it's not it's not a fault of theirs, but I think you need to flip your life. I think many many people live their lives in like a responsive default mode instead of a proactive or intentional default setting. Yeah. And making that switch. And again, it can be very incremental. It could just be like I'm going to take ten minutes to myself. I'm going to invest. 15 minutes in my spouse, in my most important relationship. It can be really intentional, but as you start to set those intentions yourself, then everything else falls around that and that Mm -hmm. thing stays sacred. Yes, that's what I'm all about. You choose to create your life. So the first step is being aware of what is the important stuff. What's important but not urgent? I like mm-hmm. that. All right. Lastly, where can our listeners find you online? They can. So the most of the activity happens over at radreads.co, which is home of the newsletter and the blog. The newsletter is every Saturday. So I would love, I would encourage everyone to sign up. It's really a special thing. And then every day, the 38-year-old millennial in me <laughs> does a daily, I've done basically consecutive Snaps. like Snapchat stories. Oh my gosh. Um, I do one per day, one per business day. Okay. And it's three, nice. like usually like three panels around something I read, something I'm thinking about or, or questions. 
And so that's th- those are the main ways. And I just launched my own podcast. I've recorded four episodes. You could get a flavor of, of these kind of this uncomfortable introspection. Uh, and it's called the Rad Awakenings podcast. And the Snapchat handle is Rad Reads. So. Rad Reads. Okay, that's easy. I was going to say, I was going to link everything in the show notes so everyone can follow you. Thank you so much, Kay, for this interview. It was so great to have you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. All right, that's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening to The Lavender Lifestyle. If you like the podcast, please show your support by leaving a review on iTunes. It helps me so much and also helps other people find the show. You can also catch me on YouTube and Instagram at Lavender, where I have even more content for the artists of life. All right, love you all. Bye.